Hello, this is Andrew Litton, music director of New York City Ballet, welcoming you back to See the Music. As you all know, the entire performing arts industry is on hold for the foreseeable future. So you are about to hear a rebroadcast of a podcast we originally aired in October 2019 about Bizet's Symphony in C. It was a really fun episode, so I'm delighted to bring it back. In it, you get to meet the then newly appointed principal oboe, Julia DeRosa. We will be back next week with a new episode of City Ballet, the podcast. To begin and to whet your appetite, let's hear the orchestra and I play the beginning of the third movement from that same week in October of 2019. Very exciting month at New York City Ballet. Earlier in September, we hired a new principal oboe for the company. And this kind of event is huge in an orchestra because when you're lucky enough to land a job as a principal player, principal wind in an orchestra, you actually stay there for the rest of your career. And so for openings like this to come along, it's very unusual. And so we held auditions, international auditions, 155 applicants. Some 52, 53 showed up, and the most exciting thing happened. A substitute with us in the orchestra for, oh, at least seven years won the audition behind the screen. There's a screen up for the entire process, so nobody had any idea who was playing. This is, in fact, how we do all of our auditions for the orchestra at New York City Ballet, and it's fantastic because it's extremely fair. We even have a pianist to accompany the candidates, and only the pianist can see the candidate. So um, it's, quite, it's quite something. And then, you know, there's four or five rounds. And the last person left standing was Julia DeRosa. And it's my pleasure to introduce your, our listeners to her today. Welcome, Julia. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so tell me, first of all, when you started oboe and where did you grow up and who did you study with? I started playing the oboe when I was 10 years old. Um, I had played some recorder and some piano before that. I grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut, which is about an hour from the yeah, city. Yeah, it's not too far. Yeah. Um, and after, after learning the basics, I was lucky enough to go to Juilliard Pre-College, where I studied with Rich D'Alessio. Um, Rich became, shortly after that, Rich became the um, associate principal oboe of the New York City Ballet. And, and also he played English horn, absolutely beautiful, and I'm saying was because sadly we lost him a couple years ago now to cancer. He was a wonderful member of this orchestra and just a, a sweet guy besides being a great player. Yeah, exactly. He was probably the biggest influence on my life at that time, and he 
taught me everything I know about oboe playing um, until I was lucky enough to study with Elaine Duvas in um, college when I went to Juilliard for my undergrad. Now, Elaine Duvas is principal oboe of the Metropolitan Opera, and she first got the job there, I believe, in like 1977. And I don't know if you know this, Julia, but I played oboe for a couple of years. I've absolutely loved the instrument. I started piano when I was six, but I just loved the oboe so much, and I was growing up in a New York City of, of Harold Gomberg at the New York Philharmonic, mm-hmm. and uh, Al Genovese and, and uh, Bill Arrowsmith at the Met, and so I was around all this fantastic playing, and then this, this stunning young lady gets the job at the Met, and I have to say, I was smitten. I thought she was great. <laughs> and, and you know, the way life works, and life is so weirdly wonderful, uh, years later, when I became a, a true maestro and had my own orchestras, I've hired s- several of her students, and now I'm happy to say <laughs> it's you. <laughs> yeah, she she's kind of a prolific teacher, and she's world famous for her playing and her teaching both. She has been hugely influential for me as well. And as you say, most oboe players in this country have been taught by her, taught by the man John Mack, who was her teacher, and so it's all kind of a big family. Well, it's, it's not only a big family, but it's, it's kind of this wonderful warm sound that this school of oboe playing produces and, and incredible musicality. And so um, I'm very excited that you're, you're our new principal oboe. And, and <laughs> so you know, what's, what was fun, ladies and gentlemen, that about this whole process, um, we all loved Julia. When she subbed with us, it was always so wonderful. And so it was everybody's secret hope that you'd win the job, <laughs> but of course, I have maintained uh, ever since I got here this, this strict rule of everybody auditions for any position, and and it's all blind. It's all it's all behind the screen, so it's totally fair. You know, we we can't tell if you're male, female. It's fantastic, and it's it's yielded some amazing results. And Julia De Rosa is our is our latest win. Well, Julia, one of the things I was asked to speak about is a work that's currently in repertoire with the New York City Ballet. It's called Symphony in C, and it's by George Bizet. Now, George Bizet, to many uh, music fans, is kind of a one-hit wonder. He wrote this uh, amazing opera called Carmen, which is the third most performed opera in the world today. But when he wrote it, it was a dismal failure, and it broke his heart, and he died at the age of 35, quite tragically. But when he was a kid, he wrote this symphony as an exercise for his teacher at, at conservatory in Paris. His teacher was Charles Gounod, who is known chiefly now for writing the opera Faust, although he was quite prolific. And in 1854, he had written a symphony in D, which George Bizet would have poured over as a 16-year-old and been fascinated by it. In fact, Gounod asked the young lad to transcribe the symphony for two pianos or piano for hands, I'm not sure which. And so once, once you start messing with somebody else's composition like that, you really get into the nuts and bolts of how it's put together. And so it's inevitable that he was hugely influenced, the young Bizet, by his teacher, who he adored, uh, older symphony. I mean, and so six months later, in one month, George Bizet writes this adorable, beautiful symphony. And then forgets about it, because it was, it was basically a school exercise. It was, uh, you know, like a term paper. And so 
it lay completely forgotten until 1933. So almost 80 years later, uh, it's discovered in the, in the library at the school. And it finally received its world premiere. So Bizet never actually heard it played in 1935, exactly 80 years after he wrote it. And in, as soon as after that is 1947, one George Balanchine, who loved this piece from the first time he heard it, made a ballet to this symphony, which he originally called Le Palais de Cristal. It was written, it was uh, choreographed for the Paris Opera Ballet in 1947. And that is indeed the ballet that we now play so happily at New York City Ballet. But it's just so interesting to think that had somebody not been doing a good job going through the files at the conservatory, we'd still not know this piece. It was that neglected and that forgotten and unknown. A symphony in C. So obviously a composer is going to start in C major, and Bizet is no exception. So that's how the whole symphony starts. Chirpy, happy C major. And then shortly after, because this is in classic symphony, sonata allegro form, which is what we call when it's just this just absolutely standard stock way symphonies were written for hundreds of years. There's a second subject. And the second subject happens to be played by the oboe. And so Julia's going to help demonstrate this is the second theme from the first movement of Bizet's Symphony in C. Symphony in C is in four movements. You've just heard the two themes from the first movement. The second movement is this gorgeous pas de deux, of course, this beautiful adagio, and one of its biggest features is it's got a massive oboe solo. And, you know, while the ballerina, of course, has every right to have jitters as she comes out on stage for this, as the first oboe in an orchestra, when this solo is looming, it's got to be daunting. Julia, how do you prepare for this moment? Because after all, maybe everybody's looking up on stage, but everybody can hear you. There's no place to hide. Yes, it starts very quietly. And it also starts on a low note for the oboe. And for us, that's really hard. It's difficult to play low notes quietly. And so it, it's extra nerve wracking <laughs> because it starts there. So my favorite way to not feel jittery is to just be as prepared as I possibly can for anything that might happen, but also in the way that I study the music. Um, this, this solo is iconic, and I think it's one of those beautiful moments where the dance elevates the music. It's beautiful on its own, but then when you add what Balanchine did, it, it becomes a whole different story. It's, it's magical. Well, absolutely. I totally agree with you, especially because Balanchine took this, this juvenilia, this piece written by a 17-year-old, and transforms it into a major ballet. So, you know, in every respect, he's, he's actually made the piece better. 
Right, absolutely. So I think the thing that really inspires me with this solo is the, the dance itself. Um, the dance has an incredible buoyancy to it. It's just really artistic, and it, it shows me how to play the solo. Did you ever do any dance yourself? Did you study dance as a young girl? So I, I had a very intense dream to be a ballerina as a kid. Um, and I started ballet very early on at a school in my hometown. And I danced for 15 years. I was quite intense about it. Though being realistic, I quickly realized that I was unlikely to be dancing the lead role in Symphony and Z. <laughs> um, but from very early on, my parents took me to performances in Lincoln Center um, at the opera and at the ballet too. And I remember being six years old and seeing Union Jack at New York City Ballet and many other incredible pieces. And always noticing the oboe parts and noticing particularly how in ballet, the oboe has an amazing role. You know, things like Swan Lake, are, That's right. Are, the, big, the big Swan Lake tune is yeah. played on the oboe. That's the you know big oboe. Yeah, and and I noticed how the instrument that I had chosen to play was really such a major voice at the ballet, and so it became my goal relatively early on to play oboe at the New York City Ballet. And I realized that not only was it exactly what I had been wanting as a dancer, but I could do it for longer. <laughs> I <That's> could. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it was almost. It, it was perfect. It, it suited that dream. Suited me perfectly, and to think that that's happened now. It's amazing. Is, I mean, dreams right. do come true, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's incredible. When Julia told us that story after winning the audition, uh, we, well, a couple of us missed it up. Definitely, we were just so, <laughs> so, so excited for you, but also. You know, you play so beautifully, so expressively that Thanks. when you play this solo from the second movement of Bizet Symphony, it's it's you. It's totally you. It's like listening to Ella Fitzgerald saying, "You know, it's Ella <laughs> Fitzgerald." And I just love the way you've taken ownership of this already after just one performance. This principal <laughs> oboe um, last night was absolutely a spectacular show, and so I think let's now demonstrate. Julia De Rosa playing the gorgeous oboe melody from the second movement of Bizet Symphony in C. That was gorgeous, Julia. Thank you so much. Julia DeRosa, the brand new principal oboe of New York City Ballet, playing the 
gorgeous melody of the second movement from George Bizet's Symphony in C. So this is a work which, as I mentioned, and I think Julia mentioned actually, Balanchine actually gave a shelf life to that it probably never would have had, and certainly not to the extent that it does, by creating this genius ballet. I mean, one of the early memories I have of watching New York City Ballet perform this work was, of course, the finale, which is incredible, where, you know, the music repeats a lot, and, but each time it repeats, there's more people on stage, and then suddenly the whole stage is filled with twirling ballerinas, and it's, it's absolutely stunning. That's one of those moments, I think, where Balanchine really helped Bizet along, because totally. when you play it alone, it you really have to make sure you do lots of different things so that the repeats don't all sound the same. Exactly, and and so it's it's just a pleasure to actually be able to perform this work uh, on such a high level, but also, shall we say, with the brilliant visual distraction of yeah. the great dancers of New York City Ballet. So, Julia, as I mentioned earlier, I tried to play oboe for two years in, in junior high, and I it really it lasted for a full two years until I realized I had to make reeds. <laughs> Up to then, I was playing on these lovely fiber cane plastic things that were basically, uh, well, they, you didn't have to do anything to them. You just stuck them in your mouth and played. When you go watch an orchestra play, you always see the oboe player messing around with a whole bunch of reeds. It's the most reed-sensitive instrument, I think, of all the winds. How much time do you spend making reeds a week, would you say? Um, at least two hours a day. Two hours a day. So that's two hours a day where you yes. also can't practice. You can't yes, although some of it is is trying it out on the instrument and seeing, like, you know, for this solo in particular, you use a reed that's very specific to this solo. So sometimes we like to trick ourselves into thinking that we actually are practicing. But. I love it. <laughs> now, so obviously you'll try little bits of the solo to yeah, see exactly. how it speaks. Mm -hmm. Now, but this is interesting to me. The same is true for opera singers. What you hear inside your head is, of course, very different from the sound that's going out to the audience. And that must be true for oboe as well, because it's the, the reed is inside your mouth. So mm -hmm. how can you actually honestly tell which one sounds better? Just experience? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, reed making, I didn't know before I started the oboe that I would have to do that. But I, I found out, as you did relatively soon after, um, and it actually totally fascinated me. A lot of people are very frustrated by reed making, but I, I think it's really one of the most unique things about our instrument. Um, I mean, you're literally carving your own sound out of a piece of wood. Um, you know, when you start out, it looks like a tube of bamboo. And when you finish, it's the solo in symphony in C, you know? So right. it, it's really pretty fascinating. And you just, you have to spend many, many years making thousands of reeds to really be able to do it. But once you can do it, it's, you can tailor make the reed to your own physical setup and also to exactly what you need for that night's performance. So in one performance, I'll have different reeds for different, um, different pieces. For example, the Tandun piece we're playing um, has a lot of effects in it like flutter tonguing and double tonguing. So I use a different reed for that than I would use for this. Um, 
And it's, I think it's very special because you can shape it to exactly what you need. And actually, I've always thought that it was extremely similar to what dancers do with their point shoes. Um, I was going to say, it sounds yeah. so, so similar to when I've spoken to dancers about yeah. this experience and you see them fussing with their shoes right, right before a show and you know, pounding them against the wall and all right. this stuff. Right. It's actually, it's, it, it's strange how similar it is because, first of all, the shelf life is similar. Mm -hmm. um, the shoes don't last very long and neither do the reeds. You're, you're lucky if you get one performance out of a reed. Wow. And, and you're also lucky if you can play all the way through one performance on one reed. And yeah, the shoes are, are tailor-made. They're specific to each dancer and they make adjustments to them that they specifically like. They might cut a part of it or they, they put ribbons in certain places where another dancer might not. And so it's very, very similar to what we do with our reeds. Um, I think we do have the added challenge though that every time it starts raining, everything is ruined. <laughs> <laughs> the weather really has, has an impact on what we do and so you might notice next time it's pouring rain and you go to a concert that the oboist's sound is particularly large that day okay. because our reeds swell up. Really? That's, yeah. that's so fascinating. <laughs> now, I mean, all right, I'm going to keep asking you ignorant questions. Uh, all right, you take this piece of bamboo. So what makes each reed different? Because obviously you're scraping and shaping them, and, but if you had a way to figure out to do the same thing each time to get exactly the sound you wanted, um, wouldn't that take away the variable, or does the actual wood vary also? Well, that's a really interesting way to talk about it, actually, because it's true. It's a plant that you're making the reed out of. It was a living thing, and so every single piece is different. And, you know, there are actually various schools of thought on this, um, all of which are very opinionated and very much oh, think I they're right. I can imagine. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I tend to think that it's a mistake to sort of put the same template, if you will, on every single piece of cane that you use because then you're at the mercy of the plant, mm -hmm. right? So what I like to do is think of every reed as different and you treat it differently um, because it just reacts differently. Sometimes a piece of cane is harder or softer and that'll affect the lifespan of the reed um, as well as many, many other things. So what I was taught to do was to have a series of objective tests that you do on the read, and basically that you make the sound consistent, but it doesn't need to look consistent. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I, think I get that. Um, <laughs> one other technical question. In a solo that goes on and on for as long as this gorgeous one from Bizet that we just performed, do you use this technique called circular breathing? Well, no. Okay. I'll let you in on a secret. People think that oboists have exceptional lung capacity because it seems like we can go on and on without taking a breath. Right. And maybe that's a little bit true, but if you've ever looked at an oboe reed, if you look at the opening that you're actually blowing the air into, it's teeny tiny. It's like really small. And it's what like that, a, it's like an old-fashioned straw in a way. <laughs> even smaller. It's yeah. like if you if you flattened it, it, yeah. it would be like that. And so, what's happening in effect is that we tend to have too much air because there's such a small amount that needs to go into the reed that what you're seeing us do most of the time is breathing out right. instead of breathing in. So, circular breathing would only be used if it was like really, really long. <laughs> and yeah. this is just on the verge. So, so no, I don't need to circular breathe for that. But 
it perhaps seems more impressive than it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's extraordinary. I mean, one of the things that I've always felt um, as, as a musician listening to an oboe melody is it's kind of nice to know that you're human and you need to take oxygen in occasionally. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, you know, the big oboe solo at the beginning of the second moon of the Brahms Violin Concerto mm -hmm. is a perfect case in point. Um, it's a song, you know. Right. Brahms wrote lots of amazing songs. This just happens to be a song for oboe. And so it's nice to hear the breath. Yeah, <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's a part of how you play it. And that's why I think we, we often plan very carefully where we're going to take our breaths. Yeah. Julia DeRosa, new principal oboe of New York City Ballet, thank you so much for joining me today on See the Music on City Ballet, the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andrew Litton, music director of New York City Ballet. We will be back next week with a new episode of City Ballet, the podcast. So be sure to subscribe to stay up to date. All of us here at New York City Ballet, thank you for joining us. <laughs>